Paul and the apostles become aware of the persecution that's around them. Verse 6 starts out, And they became aware of it, and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding regions, and they preached the gospel there. And in Lystra a certain man, without strength in his feet, was sitting, crippled from his mother's womb, who had never walked, This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observed him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought ox and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice to the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with same nature as you, and preach that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all things that are in, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, giving us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude's from sacrificing to them. Let's pray. Father, your word is living and powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Father, we, this morning we ask God that you would just bless Pastor Dan The Holy Spirit would control his thoughts. And Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes of our understanding. We thank you, God, that from generation to generation, you have never left yourself without a clear word, a clear testimony to your sovereignty, to your power, to your grace, and to your goodness. Father, your word is uncompromising and unchanging, and you have written eternity in every man's heart. Father, we ask this morning that, God, that you would minister to us through your word, that you would minister to us your grace, your healing, your conviction. God, that we would be acceptable servants, rightly discerning the word of truth, Father, I pray that we will apply it to our lives and that we will be new people. We will be fresh. We will be clean through your word when we walk out of these doors. God, that we might be a witness and that you wouldn't leave yourself without a witness through our lives as well, that our light would shine among men, that they might see our good works and then in turn glorify our Father who is in heaven. We pray these things through the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. 
Thanks for that prayer, Patrick. So thankful for those hymns we got to sing. What a blessing to be a part of Operation Christmas Child. Hey, such a small thing for us to do, but what a powerful impact for eternity. It's hard to watch those videos without thinking about that. Hey, um, those verses that Patrick read for us will be where we're at this morning. I've got a message here somewhere. Let me pray as well, and we'll begin, hey? Okay, Heavenly Father, I just want to come before you now and ask, and I know Patrick's already prayed, but we ask again, Father, that you would bless this time. Keep me from saying anything I should not say. May you be pleased with what, I, with what is proclaimed and our response to it. Help us to be active listeners. Father, uh, we, we, we commit this time to you now and ask that you would move in a wonderful way. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. Um, the title of this message is The Word of His Grace. I get that from uh, Acts 14, verse 3, where it says that's what they were proclaiming, the Word of His Grace. Um, before I begin with that, I, I want us to think about something. I heard this statement. It might have been Ravi Zacharias giving a message um, I was listening to earlier. Uh, might have been yesterday or the day before, but he said something. And I think we would agree with this, that reality, reality should shape our perspective. Reality should shape our perspective. But we live in a compromised, and this is not what Ravi Zacharias went on to talk about, but this is what I want to talk about. But we live in a compromised and a compromising world, and that is just evident. Hey, I mean, it was just this last week and I don't know all the details, but the Pope came out in favor of gay marriage in some way. And um, the Bible is just so clear on that. It's just startling to hear such things. But we live in a compromise, in a compromising world. It's compromised by sin, by self, and by Satan. It's marked by, or you might say it is marred by confusion and chaos and a callousness to truth. We live in a world where perspectives are trying to shape reality. In other words, people's opinions or their perspectives are, are attempting to shape reality instead of reality forming our opinions or reality informing our perspectives. People's opinions. And you know, in a world like that, it's hard, it's hard to, it can be hard to live because if, if the arbiter between right and wrong is man, and this isn't original with me, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but if the arbiter between right and wrong is man, the question becomes, which man, right? Which man? If, if, if this is right according to this man, and this is right according to this man, and this is right according to this man, who's right? So we need, we need a standard better than man, don't we? We live in a world full of people with compromised morals using compromised means and with that hoping to arrive at an uncompromised end. Compromised morals using compromised means and thinking that in some way I'm going to end up at an uncompromised end. An end that'll be good for me. And we know of and we hear of and could read of and could share examples of this. I mentioned just one. But we could mention examples both in and outside the body of Christ. 
In and outside the church, there are examples of compromise. I don't want us to stay on that humdrum thought of compromise. I want to go from there to this. In such a world, we can be very thankful for the clear and uncompromising Word of God. The clear and uncompromising Word of His grace. What a wonderful Word for us. That God's Word is uncompromising. That there is unchanging and uncompromised truth that we can grab hold of. What a wonderful Word for us this morning. And every day. And what a welcomed Word for us too that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're looking at some people that were we're going to be in a minute here, Paul and Barnabas, that are ministering the Word of God and they're, they're moving forward with the ministry that um, Jesus has given to Paul and Jesus is, is active in that. The Lord is active in that. He's confirming that ministry. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same Jesus. And what a welcoming word. Welcoming in the sense that this is a word that's for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. It's, it's, it's an open invitation. And what a word to worship God for. What a word to worship God for. We, we're singing his praises this morning about his deep love. What, how much he loved us, hey? How much he loves us. Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To Him be glory in the church. That's a word to worship God for. The word of His grace. This uncompromising word of the gospel is what built the church and continues to build the church today. It's not a wishy-washy word. I couldn't come up with another W, right? But wishy-washy is in the dictionary, apparently. In some dictionaries, it's in the Merriam-Webster's. Wishy-washy means it's not feeble, it's not weak, it's not ineffectual, it's not wishy-washy. It's uncompromising in nature. And that's what I want to talk about today, the uncompromising nature of the gospel. And I trust it'll be a blessing to you to think about that. Now, here we are in, in Acts chapter 14, and Luke has been sharing with Theophilus, whose name means the lover of God. So if you're here today, you could put your name in there. If you're a lover of God, I think it's okay to do that. Luke has been sharing with this lover of God the continuing or the ongoing activity of Jesus through his church and in the world, the advance of the gospel. And he's just sharing some of the details about that. We're looking at that in, in a narrative form. Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, the story of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, in the beginning of that ministry. And the Lord's confirmation of his gospel ministry to the Gentiles. And you know, Paul knew he was primarily an apostle to the Gentiles, but he never forgot and he never abandoned his own countrymen. And we know that to be the case. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, he, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And he says, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry with regard to that in the hope that I might somehow arouse my own people to jealousy or to envy. In other words, the Jews would be aroused to envy that the Gentiles are coming to saving faith in Jesus. And through that, he might save some of them. Paul never abandons his countrymen. But Paul never compromises the message throughout his ministry. And he speaks to a lot of different people. 
He preaches the same gospel message no matter who's he, no, it doesn't matter who he's in front of. What I thought would be helpful for us this morning, and I know we've read these verses, I'd like to go verse by verse through them, just do a little sentence in a, or a half a sentence about each one of these verses, then we'll come back to verse 6 again, okay? So if you have your Bibles, Acts 14 and verse 6. It says they became aware of it, the fact that they were going to get stoned, possibly, and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, and their surrounding region in the NAS. They had to get out of town, right? And so they move on to the next populated areas. In verse 7, what's it say? And there they continued to preach the gospel. They just, there they just preached the gospel. In verse 8, we're introduced to an impotent man. He's crippled from his mother's womb. He was born that way. At Lystra, a man who was, was sitting, who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. In verse 9, there's this recognition of faith. Paul can see that this man has the faith to be healed. I think he has saving faith to begin with. And because of that, Paul knows he has faith to be healed as well. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. When he had fixed his gaze on him and he had seen that he had faith to be, to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk, it says in verse 10. So there's a command and a response. Stand up and the man responds in faith. In verse 11, the people see this, and they get vocal about it. They're, it would be an understatement to say they're excited about this, right? Here's this man that this town, the people there, they know him. He's been lame since he was born. He came out of the womb this way, and he's on his feet and walking. But they misappropriate the source of this miracle. In verse 12, they give names to Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and Hermes. Or you might have Jupiter and Mercury maybe in your translation. I don't know if you have that or not. But Zeus and Hermes, they apply names to them and title. The gods are among them, us. And when they apply that title, it must freak Paul. And I know it does. It freaks them out a bit, right? Don't do that. Don't, don't say that about us. And, and that's what we read in verse 14. This misapplication, the apostles are appalled at that. It freaks them out a bit. In verse 15, in order to refute what they're about to do, Paul uh, gives a little sermonette, if you will, verse 15, 16, and 17. In verse 15, he really talks about a universal need of repentance. He says, we're men just like you. And we needed to turn... From, from vain things to the living God, and you need to do so as well. He speaks of the need for repentance. I think it's a verse that speaks of grace. Verse 16, I think, is a verse that really touches on the mercy of God, God's patience with the nations. In the generations gone by, He permitted all nations to go their own way. God was just patient with the nations. In verse 17, uh, it's just obvious that he's speaking about the fact that God has never been without a witness. And I think that speaks to God's justice. Because God has never been without a witness. God is just when he judges, right? And in verse 18, we, we read that this little sermonette restrains the people, but just barely from doing what they wanted to do. Just barely. By the skin of their teeth. Well, with all this, we can make some observations. 
The first observation I would want to point out to you is that there is a consistency to the message. Now, that's a simple observation, but that is a big point. There's a consistency to the message. They are going to get stoned, they flee, and they go and they preach the same message. The second observation is this, that there is a real concern for a proper understanding of what God is doing in the midst of people. There's a real concern to be had for that for people not to misunderstand what God is actually doing, and that it's God doing it. And then a third thing is that there is a history lesson, and the history lesson Paul gives touches on the very character of God. Those three observations are things we can just grab right a hold of. There's a consistency to their message. There's a real concern for a proper understanding of what God has done, and it's not Paul and Barnabas that have done it. And there's this history lesson that touches on the very character of God. All of those things have a common thread, and the common thread is this, that there is this uncompromising nature to the gospel. There's an uncompromising nature to the gospel of Christ, the word of his grace. So if you're a note taker and you have your notes in front of you, there's three points to this message, and the first one is there's no compromise of the message, and we can see the uncompromising, uncompromising nature of the gospel in that it, in, in this, that the ministers of the gospel have one consistent message. And it's the same message we have today. We can see the uncompromising nature of the gospel in that. There's no compromise of the message. Verse 6 through 10. They became aware of it and fled. And we just read that. Verse 7. And there they continued to preach the gospel. You know, the gospel deals in absolutes. It deals in absolutes. It doesn't deal in speculations. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, this, his, the second letter, well, it might not be the second letter, but in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it's the second one that we have. 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. The gospel deals in absolutes. It does not deal in speculations. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So people can have thoughts about Jesus and thoughts about God, but if they're not consistent with Scripture, those thoughts are wrong. The gospel doesn't deal with speculations. It deals in absolutes. And, and what a wonderful truth that is for us to grab hold of. It deals in absolutes. When we come to the gospel, it is the reality that should shape our perspectives. The gospel doesn't peddle in myths. Paul writes two letters to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.4 and in 1 Timothy 4.7 and in 2 Timothy 4.4, he mentions that the gospel doesn't deal in myth. I think it's in 1 Timothy 1.4, he mentions it this way, have nothing to do with godless myths. The gospel Deals in absolutes, it doesn't deal in myth, it doesn't deal in speculations. What a wonderful thing to, be, to, to grab hold of. It doesn't deal in made-up stories. I love this verse, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because I came to faith in Jesus, and some months went by, and I started to question, and I started to doubt, and I started to think, boy, did I really understand it clearly. And I prayed about that. And when I prayed about that, I read what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.16. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised schemes or cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of what? Of his majesty. Of his majesty. 
Peter is saying Jesus is God. It is not a cleverly devised fable. It's not a story made up by man. It's not based in speculation. It's not a myth. It's based in absolute fact. In a compromised and compromising world, this is wonderful truth for us to grab hold of. The gospel doesn't peddle in the commandments of men, nor, it, nor is it a deception. Paul writes that to Titus in Titus 1.14. So they are consistent with this message, Paul and Barnabas. They have a commitment to it. You know, it really is the testimony of Luke throughout the book of Acts that everyone that shares the gospel is sharing that one gospel, unchanging gospel message. They don't, they don't waver from it. Faithful ministers of the gospel stay faithful to that message. If you, if you were to think about the content of the gospel, it would be Jesus was born, right? He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death on the cross. He rose again on the third day, and he's ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. You might say that's maybe a little bit of an expanded content of the gospel, but then the gospel contains so much more to it with regard to everything else Scripture has for us but they stay faithful to the message. Paul, Paul writes at one point, and he says, I, I, I declared unto you as of first importance that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried according to the Scriptures, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, if you're thinking, well, what is that? The death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, what does that mean for me? This man 2,000 years ago died and was buried and rose again. Well, that's a good place to start. What does that mean for you? Maybe touch on that toward the end of the message here, what it ought to mean. But they're consistent with this message, and it's a consistent message throughout the book of Acts. In verse 6 and 7, they, again, they've had to flee under the threat of being stoned, and they come into another area, but they don't change the message. They don't make it less offensive. They don't dress it up. Or they don't say to anyone as they're proclaiming the message or think, well, these are a special case. Yours is a special case, so let me tailor this message. So they don't do that. It's the same message. Now, it is true that believers are to live in such a way as to make the gospel attractive, but the message never changes. It's an unchanging message. It deals in absolutes. I'd ask you to consider, how is it possible this morning that this message is as fresh in 2020 as it was in 120 A.D., or as in 50 A.D.? How is that possible? By fresh, I mean it still divides people into two groups, so clearly defined, just as it did 2,000 years ago. I see people nodding their head. I hear amens. And, these are, and, and, and in that, I, I know that I'm, there's a brother and sister in Christ that is in agreement and saying, yeah, this gospel message is the truth. It deals in absolutes. I, I get that. And then some people would say, no, I, I don't believe that at all. It divide, clearly divides into two groups, just as it always has. It's just as fresh. There are people who respond in faith and they find themselves rejoicing in those same truths. They experience those same things. There is a special joy 
maybe has been a minute, but there is a special joy in coming to faith in Jesus Christ and then having this experience of coming to faith and what that has been like and, and the freedom that that gives you and the joy that overwhelms your soul and the things you're starting to understand about the Lord. And then you read something in the New Testament and realize, yeah, that's what happened to me. It's just as fresh today as it was 2,000 years ago. The message hasn't changed. And what a wonderful truth for us to grab hold of. The gospel deals in absolutes. It's an uncompromised message. In a compromised and compromising world, what a wonderful truth. The message is consistent in its call for a response. This man responds in faith in verses 8 and 9. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But he responds in faith. And it's consistent in regard to the confirmations of Christ. Christ is confirming Paul's ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles, and he confirmed Peter's ministry, Peter and John's ministry, to the, as they brought the gospel to the Jews in a very similar way. Peter and John are outside the temple, and there's a man that's lame from his mother's womb, and he's healed, and, God, and the Lord confirms the message that they're proclaiming. And this same message is confirmed as it's given to the Gentiles. In other words, God is behind this, right? God is behind this thought that the message is solid and that you can trust it and it doesn't matter who you are. It, you're not a special case. You haven't lived your life in some certain way that the gospel isn't applicable to you and you need some other gospel or some other version or something else or that you're going to find some other way to stand before a holy God. That's not the case. It's universal. I mean, it, it, not universal in the fact that everyone's going to accept it, but it's universal in the fact that everyone can receive it. Everyone can hear and respond to it. There's not another message to be given. Second point has to do with worship. We're talking about how I've been talking about how would I compromise, how compromised the world is. I'd ask you to consider this, how compromised the world is when it, when it comes to worship. Everybody worships something or someone. Everybody. Cindy and I drove past a temple the other day, and she was wondering, she said out loud, how did they get the money to build that thing? I thought, yeah, how'd that happen? I mean, there's some form of, air quotes here, worship they're involved with there, right? So often, everything and everyone is worshipped and served in some way or another. Everyone and everything, everyone but God, right? Who is alone to be worshipped. The gospel brings us into true worship. It allows for no compromise in worship. And this is another thing to my point here, that the gospel is an uncompromising message. Verse 11 through 15 when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have, come, have become like men and have come down to us. And there's this priest who is willing to lead people in false worship. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. It says in verse 13, 
There's no compromise in worship when it comes to the gospel. It's an uncompromising message that allows for no confusion, no compromise, and no competition when it comes to worship. When it comes to true worship, there are so many verses in the Bible we could look through, and I got excited and I started writing them down, and I realized I can't include all these verses in this message. I just got to pick one or two. So I picked two. And, and these two, I think, kind of maybe put an exclamation point or brackets around what I'm trying to say with regard to this point here. There's no compromise in worship. Psalm 86, verse 9 and 10. You can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. Psalm 86, verse 9 and 10. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. I'm talking about the fact that when it comes to worship, no one should be worshipped other than God. There should be no confusion about that. No one should be worshipped other than God. There should be no compromise with regard to that. And no one should be worshipped other than God, and there should be no competition for the worship that is due Him. He shouldn't have to compete for that worship, but He does in this world, right? Psalm 86, 9 and 10, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Paul and Barnabas aren't going to allow for any compromise in worship because they're given this uncompromising message. But I think those two verses, if we just think about them a little bit, Psalm 86, 9 and 10, I think it's, they sum up how compromised the world is now when it comes to worship and how the gospel leads us all into uncompromised worship. We can truly worship God when we come to faith in Jesus Christ through the message of the gospel. In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to a woman who has some religious beliefs, and she's familiar with some form of worship, but not true worship. And Jesus says to her in John 4, 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, while there should be no confusion, no compromise, and no competition with regard to the worship of God, we know in our world there is, and here in this text there is, confusion and compromise and competition. That competition would be idolatry. And the apostles are freaked out about it. They rent their clothes. They tear their clothes. They do something physical, and they say, don't do that. The apostles don't want the confusion, so they confront it head on. And Paul does two things to confront this. First, he rebukes them in verse 15 and says, why are you doing these things? Men, sirs, why are you doing these things? Just a lighthearted thing. Maybe we're going along a little bit too serious here. Why do you do these things, is the King James. It reminded me of Abbott and Costello. I don't know if you're familiar, but that's what who's the tall guy and who's the shorter guy? The tall guy asks the shorter guy, why do you do these things? They're asking, they're asking, why do you do these things? I wondered if that's not where he got that line from. Why do you do these things? Why are you, why are you engaging in this idolatry? He rebukes them. We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things or these useless things, these worthless things to a living God. That's an uncompromising message. This worship that you're about to engage in 
is worthless. It doesn't do anything. And we're not gods. And you ought not to be worshiping anything other than God himself or anyone. So Paul rebukes them, and then he calls them to repentance. Turn from these vain things. And it's turn from and turn to. Turn from these vain things unto the living God. And that, that is this uncompromising message in a nutshell. You can turn from vain things unto the living God. When you respond by faith to the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and was buried, the burial you deserved, and he rose again. And if you trust in him, you'll rise again with him one day as well. He rose again on the third day. Death could not hold him. There's no room for competition. We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things unto the living God. And then he goes on to describe from there who this God is. This God is the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways and that he did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Brings me to my last point. This gospel message comes into a compromised world, but it's an uncompromising message, and, it do, and it's uncompromising in this way. The gospel message does not compromise on the character of God. And that's the problem with every other religion, right? Every other religion compromises on the character of God. It distorts the character of God. The gospel doesn't do that. In verse 15, well, let me just say this. There are many false religions that there are many false religions and many that distort the character of God, but the gospel is consistent with the grace and mercy and justice of God. Of all the things that Paul could have said in this moment, I just want to spend these last couple of minutes looking at what he did say, because he's given him a history lesson, a true history lesson, the history of man from God's perspective. And when he does that, he touches on the grace of God and the mercy of God and the justice of God. In Acts 20, 24, Paul is speaking and he says, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, move from the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The gospel is the gospel of God's grace. Again in verse 15, and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men like of like passions with you. He speaks of their universal need and a call to believe. And we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God. When Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2, 11 and 12, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. 
I think verse 15, he's pointing them to the grace of God. He's, he's, he's putting before them who this God is that they ought to worship. And the message that they have to proclaim to them is a message of grace. In verse 16, I think he touches on the mercy of God, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, he didn't fry all nations. He was patient. He suffered with them. He was long, God is long-suffering. He's merciful. When you speak of God's mercy, Psalm 136, I was reading that uh, in the last couple of weeks here, maybe two weeks ago, I don't remember when. But it's 20, Psalm, Psalm 136 is 26 verses. 26 verses, and each individual verse ends, ends with the mercy of God. I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. It is such a blessing. 26 verses, each verse ends with the mercy of God. It got me to thinking, well, what is the mercy of God? That's why I got to explore that a little bit a week or two ago. But the mercy of God speaks to his absolute goodness and kindness. Eh? His absolute goodness and kindness. This is the God that, that Paul is proclaiming to them and his patience. Mercy is mentioned a lot of places in Scripture. In Romans 11.32, well, in Romans 9, Paul says, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And then if you keep reading, you get to uh, chapter 11 and verse 32, Paul writes, For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. He's a merciful God. And right after that, right after he says that, so that he might have mercy on them all, the next thing that comes out of Paul's, off of Paul's pen Maybe out of his mouth, I was about to say. But it's, oh, the depth of the riches. I can't remember the next statement. I don't want to get it wrong. Where am I going? What did I just say? Romans 11. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable. Unfathomable. I can't say that word. Are his ways as he ponders on the fact that God desires to be merciful to all. He's bound all over unto disobedience. In other words, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. God has bound all over to disobedience so that he might be merciful, show his kindness and his goodness and his mercy to all. He, he goes right from that into all oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's blown away by God's mercy. And, and Paul, uh, in this short little sermonette in verses 15, 16, and 17, God's mercy is all over the place. God's the one that made everything. And he's been patient with the nations. But he never left himself about a witness in that, he, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Even the ungodly God takes care of and provides for. Even those that don't think about him at all. I think about how God protected my whole life prior to coming to faith in Christ. How he led me to that point where I was in a place where I could understand what I was hearing with regard to the gospel. God's mercy all the way. His grace all the way. Verse 17, he touches on the justice of God. He's talking about the character of God here. The gospel is an uncompromising message and it doesn't compromise on the character of God. There are a lot of other messages out there 
lot of other religious beliefs, but they compromise the character of who God really is. So he touches on the justice of God. He left not himself without a witness. I'm getting some background here. What's he saying there? He's saying we're without excuse, right? God is just when he judges. His justice is not perverted by the gospel either. Jesus paid it all. Someone had to pay the sin debt that I owed. Someone had to pay the sin debt that you owed. By this one sacrifice, you that the He paid it in full. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Because he has a permanent priesthood. This little short sermon on the character of God was parody because it explained God in awful By speaking on God's grace, mercy, and justice, his activity in the world, the history of the history of man from God's perspective, Paul's words restrain the people from false worship and inappropriate actions based on their own misinterpretation of these events and from a misunderstanding of who is at work in their midst. So I just want to conclude with a couple of things here. There's someone that might be here today that has yet to trust Jesus. This message, I want to say to you again, this message is unchanging. It's uncompromising. It does not yield to anyone's false notions. But it is a message of salvation for everyone. You don't respond by faith. But it's not faith in your faith. It's faith in Jesus. If you know him, you've been saved by and blessed by and given to take into a compromise world. That's our task. You shouldn't be surprised that the world is compromised. tells us we can offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and that is our the offering of our bodies in a manner that's holy and pleasing to God. That would be our, our thoughts, our hands, our feet, where we go, what we think, our motivations. And we can also rejoice and proclaim the character of God and His mercy, grace, and justice, His truth, His love. You know, there's other aspects of the character of God in that little sermon that I just pointed out those three. But we can proclaim the character of God to a world that desperately needs to hear their history, the history of man. With that, we're going to do Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you bless your people with this. Help us to remember this word.